0: Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Grab a seat. This is fun. So good to be in God's house this morning. Can I get an amen? Amen. Man, uh, my name is Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. Really glad you're here, whether you are uh, brand new with us, a warm welcome to you, or you're someone who's been with us for... A long time, I want to begin this morning's sermon with a question uh, on a scale of one to ten, how much do you trust God? Uh, one could be I'm not even sure that he exists or that his uh, promises are real or that his power is real or that his word is true. Ten would be, I'd go anywhere, do anything, say anything, face anyone, God's got me. Uh, He'll never let me down. He'll always provide for all my needs. He's hearing and answering my prayers right now. Where are you on that spectrum? Uh, the reason I ask is because I know that everyone comes in here and, uh, maybe intellectually you feel like your presence in this room, um, whether you would identify yourself as a Christian or a church goer, you know that intellectually your answer should be a 10, like of course I should, I'm supposed to trust God, uh, but we all live in this gap, right, between our mind and the things that we know should be true and our actual daily life and the things that happen within uh, our emotions and our heart and our will and our belief. Um, We are going to be wrapping up the book of Genesis this morning. It's been nine months. We started in January and we're going to be covering the breadth of uh, eight chapters, chapter 42 through 50. And so this morning is going to be a couple things. Um, One is just going to be a a simple Bible study together where I walk you through key moments in the narrative, and our aim, part of the win this morning, is just that you would leave with an increase in understanding of what happens in the book of Genesis. But way more important than that is a prayer that I have for all of us, and that is as a result of our time spent in God's Word this morning, our trust in Him— would very tangibly increase. And so I want to invite you to pray with me uh, because that doesn't happen because I say some fancy words or because you sit in a seat and listen to someone talk about the Bible. It happens because the spirit of the living God grips a person's heart and brings to remembrance truth and exalts the person and work of Jesus. And so I want you to pray with me now. God, we pause and we acknowledge once again your presence. You are all-powerful, all-knowing, filled with a steadfast love for us. So compassionate, unchanging, unfailing, and faithful. God, I am so grateful this morning that no matter how we come in, the ways that our life feels like it might be unraveling, the ways areas in our life might feel like they are disordered or chaotic, you are unchanging and you restore, you bring wholeness and peace and shalom and healing. It's just who you are. We acknowledge you right now, God, and we ask that you would teach us Holy Spirit. May not one word of Scripture return void. May you be honored and glorified. May our wavering faith in you become more solid and sure this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 41. If you brought your Bible this morning is where I want you to meet me, Genesis chapter 41. And I want to read the set context for the story beginning in verse 37. Now, you'll have to bear with me this morning. I, I think that I can keep your attention by reading lots and lots of Scripture uh, because this happens to be one of the most epic stories in the Bible. And so follow along with me. I want to remind you of, of where we are in the context of Joseph's story. He's our main character in this section of Genesis Verse 37 of chapter 41, Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? If you remember last week, Joseph was in prison and it was his interpretation of some dreams that Pharaoh had uh, that happened to be true interpretations that impressed Pharaoh. Enough to say these things about Joseph. Verse 39, Pharaoh said, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. He said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Think massive superpower. Think of the scope of this kind of leadership that's being entrusted to Joseph. And uh, Pharaoh said, he removed his signet ring from his hand, verse 42, placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. And then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. Picture that. And wherever Joseph went, picture this, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt and Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, and listen to this, no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. And then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new Egyptian name, Zappanath-Paneah, means God lives and speaks. It's amazing. He also gave him a wife whose name was Asenath. She was the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. So Joseph took charge of the entire land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he began serving in the court of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And when Joseph left Pharaoh's presence, he inspected the entire land of Egypt. Now, set the scene. As predicted, for seven years, the land produced bumper crops. During those years, Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt, and he stored the grain from the surrounding fields in the cities. He piled up huge amounts of grain like sand on the seashore. And he stopped keeping records because there was too much to measure. Are you, again, are you getting a picture of the scope here? During this time before the first of the famine years, two sons were born to Joseph and his wife, a syneth. Joseph named his older son Manasseh. And I love this. Pay attention to the names he gives his sons and what they mean. He said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Joseph named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. Doesn't God do that, church? Doesn't God do that? 53, at last the seven years of bumper crops throughout the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had predicted. The famine also struck, pay attention to the scope, all the surrounding countries But throughout Egypt, there was plenty of food. And eventually Egypt, the famine spread there. And when the people cried out to Pharaoh for food, he told them, go to Joseph. Think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you to do. And so with severe famine everywhere, Joseph opened up the storehouses and distributed grain to the Egyptians. The famine was severe throughout the whole land and people from all around came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe throughout the world. The scene is about to enter into something so intense in terms of Joseph's life story. It has now been 22 years since his brothers plotted to kill him. Twenty-two years since Joseph, this young boy, was given a coat of many colors by his father and sat around the dinner table and told his brothers, I had these visions and dreams that one day y'all are going to bow down to me. Isn't that cool? And twenty-two years since his brothers decided to sell him into slavery. And we have followed this epic story from a pit in the ground to then a prison uh, he spent time between those two in, a, in a, a palace with Potiphar. And now he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. And the next three chapters, I just want to summarize for us, okay? Because we've got to make our way to the end of Genesis here. Chapters 42, 43, and 44 detail the encounter that Joseph has with his brothers. Joseph's father, Jacob... Realizes we've got nothing to eat. The famine has hit us here in Canaan. I've heard and received word that Egypt has all the food in their storehouse. And so we need to make a pilgrimage there from Canaan to Egypt and get help from the Egyptians. For all these 22 years, Jacob's brothers have hidden the shame and the guilt within of what happened to them. For all these 22 years, Jacob, Joseph's father, has thought his son dead. And now they come to Joseph in Egypt, and he's unrecognizable to them. He's pressing them through a series in these chapters of, of, of tests and um, commands. You know, many people, when they think of Joseph's brothers coming to Egypt and interacting with him, and there's reconciliation, that that happens in one scene. And, and biblically speaking, it happens through a multitude of interactions over the course of some months, And what he's gonna do is he's gonna basically feel out their motives. He's pressing into their commitment to one another. You wonder why? He's pressing into their commitment to their father who's back home, Jacob's back home in Canaan. You wonder why? He's gonna press into their commitment to their youngest brother, Benjamin. You wonder why? I wonder if he's asking in his mind, have they changed? Are they the same? Who have they become over the last 20 years? And can you imagine, through all these interactions, the emotional turmoil that Joseph is feeling? In fact, in these chapters, multiple times, it notes it that Joseph has to stop and remove himself from the scene into another place, weep and break down and cry and bawl his eyes out, stand up, collect himself, wash his face, and then make his way back in to dialogue with his brothers. Wow. The pain that must be felt, and you have to wonder, uh, is he thinking in his mind, when am I going to tell them? Like, at what point am I going to say, it's me? And everything turns. Joseph breaks, if you will, In chapter 44, I want to read this to you because he is demanding that the youngest brother, Benjamin, stay in Egypt as a slave and that all the other brothers go home to their father, Jacob. Pick it up with me in chapter 44, verse 18. Judah steps forward and he says, please, my Lord, he's talking to Joseph, has no idea it's Joseph. Let your servants say just one word to you. Do not be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. And here's what Judah's going to do. He's going to recount the previous conversations that they have had with Joseph, not knowing it's him. Verse 19, my Lord, previously you asked us, your servants, do you have a father or a brother? <laughs> you wonder why Joseph asked them. Do you guys have a father or a brother by chance? Uh, Verse 20, and we responded, yes, my Lord, we have a father who's an old man, and his youngest son is a child of his old age. Man, think about the emotion here. His full brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him very much. And you said to us, bring him here so I can see him with my own eyes. That's what Joseph told the brothers to do. But we said to you, my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for his father would die. And I don't think I have slides. That's my bad. Okay. Can we give it up right now for the guys up in the tech booth that run slides? Clap for them real quick right now. Don't look up there. It's not their fault. It's on me. Okay. So uh, I just lost my place. Wow. 44. Okay, here we go. Verse 24, so we returned to your servant, our father, and told him what you had said. And later, when he said, go back again and buy us more food, this is Jacob's command to the boys to go back to Egypt, we replied, we can't go, dad, unless you let our youngest brother go with us. We have to take Benjamin with us. We'll never get to see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then Jacob said to them, again, this is Judah recounting to Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph, what his dad, Jacob, had said, As you know, my wife had two sons, and one of them went away and never returned. Doubtless, he was torn to pieces by some wild animal. I've never seen him since. Now, if you take his brother away from me and any harm comes to him, you will send this grieving, white-haired man to his grave. Before I continue reading... The person talking right now is Judah. Judah was instrumental years and years and years ago in suggesting in the text that they sell Joseph into slavery and make a profit. This right here is a small picture, a window into how a person can change, but maybe even deeply, more deeply than that, how a person can wrestle with guilt and conviction and turmoil for a really long time look what Judah says. Verse 30, my Lord, imagine him pleading. I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave, my Lord. I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. Whew, thank I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, if this doesn't stir you up a little bit, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish that this would cause my father. Judah is trying to act as a substitute for his brother, Benjamin, and he doesn't even realize to whom he's begging. Could you write a crazier story and conversation? Joseph is going to break now. He's going to break down and he's going to say, brothers, it's me. And they're stunned. They don't believe him. He says, come closer. Look at me. It's me. It's me, Joseph. And he's going to proceed to tell them, everything that's happened over the last 20 years, years, 22 years, you didn't do. God did. God did this. He caused this. He had his hand over this. He was providential over this. And we've preached about this before. There's nothing that can thwart God's plans. He knows what he's doing, even in the most roundabout, crazy circumstances. And so I want to move the story along, because Joseph, after he reconciles with his brothers, he's now going to coach them up on how to approach Pharaoh and move the whole family to Egypt, specifically to Goshen, which is a farming land, a really fertile land that's right on the outskirts of Egypt, where shepherds and farmers, which is what these men do, will thrive. And so what happens is Pharaoh welcomes them. Um, you know, he sends the whole moving crew. And, and, and Joseph, Joseph has so much favor, church, that Pharaoh says, take him wherever you want. Put him in the best land. Your whole family can now dwell here. And so Jacob, Joseph's father, Jacob, he's going to get to reunite with his son. Go back and read it for yourself. It's incredible. And he is going to be moved to Egypt and he's going to begin to get to old age which in that time is like 130. So um, I want to read to you in verse 1 through 4 of chapter 46. God steps into the picture. Joseph, excuse me, Jacob set out for Egypt with all his possessions and when he came to Beersheba he offered sacrifices to the god of his father Isaac. This is tying together the whole journey we've been on y'all through Genesis. During the night, God spoke to him in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he called. Here I am, Jacob replied. I am God, the God of your father, the voice said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make your family into a great nation. I will go with you. What a precious promise. I will go with you down to Egypt, and I will bring you back again. You will die in Egypt, but Joseph will be with you to close your eyes. Now, uh, Jacob has this vision. It's incredible. God has already told Jacob previously, way back in the 30s of the chapters of Genesis, that the people of Israel are going to end up in a foreign land as sojourners for 400 years, and that God will bring them back up, bring them out again. We know this happens because in the next book of your Bible, Exodus, it details the whole story. And here's the thing. Egypt hasn't been a very fun part of the story so far, and so naturally Jacob is fearful. And this is just like our God to come and whisper in a still small voice and say, I'm with you. I know this is happening. I see this happening. I will not let you go. How comforting that must have been in Jacob's fear. Side note, why are the animated movies about Joseph and Moses so much better than the live action once, Can we just, do we, can we talk about the, I, They're so good. Go watch them. Amazing stories. Uh, so epic. Now, I want to talk to you now about Israel's formation. So if you remember, Jacob was renamed by God after wrestling with him, Israel. And you're going to see that Jacob has all these sons that make up the tribes of Israel. So in chapter 48 now, okay, we're moving along. Verses 1 through 5. One day word came to Joseph, your father, Jacob, is failing rapidly. So Joseph went to visit his father, and he took with him his two sons. Remember Joseph's two sons, born in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Joseph arrived, Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to see you. So Jacob gathered his strength and sat up in his bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful, and I will multiply your descendants. I will make you a multitude of nations, and I will give this land of Canaan to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Can we just pause real quick? All these pictures in the Old Testament of an older generation passing on orally, verbally, the blessings and the promises of God. Parents in the room, grandparents in the room, spiritual parents in the room. Are we doing this? We're we going out of our way not just to say, God has blessed me, but to proclaim this to the next generation. And say, I remember, God, God told me this. God met my need in this way. God made this promise. He's going to keep it. I pass this promise on to you. Verse 5. Now I am claiming as my own sons, this is Jacob, these two boys of yours, Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born here in the land of Egypt before I arrived. They will be my sons, just as Reuben and Simeon are. A literal translation of the Hebrew here, it reads, like Reuben and Simeon, they will be to me. This is really powerful. They, in essence, are going to become the firstborn sons of Jacob. And this provides the double portion of the firstborn's inheritance to Joseph. And theoretically, Joseph receives his portion, while Ephraim and Manasseh receive the portions of Reuben and Simeon, giving Joseph three shares. You add the other nine brothers, you have the twelve tribes of Israel. As a Bible reader... We don't want to just have TED talks about little moments in Genesis and say this is amazing. We want to help you understand. We're building a foundation for the entire rest of your Bible here. So to understand, Israel used to be Jacob, now he's the father's this nation that's called Israel and the Israelites, and that they're divided into twelve tribes is really important as you continue to read your old testament. And here's a reminder that he gives to Joseph. In verse 15 of chapter 48, he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, has God been anybody's shepherd all their life, hallelujah, to this very day the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys May they preserve my name in the names of Abraham and Isaac, and may their descendants multiply greatly throughout the earth. And so what Jacob is going to do now in chapter 49 is he's going to bless all of his sons. He's going to pronounce sort of a, uh, uh, almost a prophecy. I don't, don't, it's debatable if it actually is, but he's saying, here has been your life. Here's the legacy you've left. Here is your future. Um, And that's, that's chapter 49. And then we're going to come to Jacob's Death. So I want you to go to chapter 50 of Genesis. We made it, y'all. We're in the last chapter of Genesis, and I want you to go to, to verse 7. Joseph went up to bury his father. He was accompanied by all of Pharaoh's officials. Okay, listen to this. L- pay attention here. He was accompanied by all, all of Pharaoh's officials, all the senior members of Pharaoh's household, all the senior officers of Egypt. Joseph also took his entire household, his brothers, their households. They left their little children and flocks and herds in the land of Goshen. A great number of chariots and charioteers accompanied Joseph. The accompaniment at Jacob's funeral of all these Egyptian dignitaries and a military escort reflects the importance of who Joseph is and the dignity that that accords to his dad. It's also saying something to us. It's a theological statement to us, church. Here it is. Think about how far this little family of Abraham has progressed. God promised to make Abraham's name great and to bless him. And this is just a little foreshadow right here. All of Egypt is stopping to pay attention with pomp and circumstance at the passing of Abraham's grandson. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Especially in ancient times and even still true today, the attention paid to one's death is often considered an indication of the greatness and the significance of their life. And now we're going to get to Joseph's death in Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 19. Joseph replied to his brothers, now he's talking, kind of his final statements Don't be afraid of me. I'm going to read these last verses of Genesis. Am I God? that I can punish you. You intended to harm me. This is the verse of Genesis 50 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Now don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Verse 22, Joseph and his brothers and their families continued to live in Egypt. Joseph lived to the age of 110. He lived to see three generations of descendants of his son Ephraim, and he lived to see the birth of the children of Manasseh's son, whom he claimed as his own. Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers. But listen to this, church. Think about trusting God. God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, when God comes to help you and lead you back, pay close attention here, you must take my bones with you. So Joseph died at the age of 110. The Egyptians embalmed him, and his body was placed in a coffin in Egypt. There is a book in your Bible called Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 is called the chapter of faith. And it details to us what is commonly known as the hall of faith, not fame, faith. Hebrews 11 verse one tells us this, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Church, I want you to think back right now, think back to everything that we have journeyed on thus far since Genesis chapter 12, months ago. All the stories and the chaos and God healing and restoring and the new things that were happening. Abraham, everything with him. Isaac, everything with him. Jacob, everything with him. And now 14 chapters dedicated to the life of Joseph. When you think about anything you could pick out of those stories that would be what the author of Hebrews picks to say, that's a sign of faith. That's a sign of faith. You could think of any epic moment in their stories. You could think of Jacob wrestling with God until he got his blessing. You could think of so you could think of Joseph choosing to walk it with integrity and show faith in God when Potiphar's wife was tempting him and he was still thrown into prison and he Followed God. So you can think of anything. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Think about how subtle this is. Verse 20 of Hebrews 11. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. That's it. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. The mark of these men's lives is a belief and a trust in God being true to his promise. That's faith. If you go back to chapter 49, in the middle of Jacob blessing all of his sons, You see his blessing to none other than, do you remember Judah? I want to read this to you because it gives us a picture of a certain character to come that is foreshadowed right here in these moments. Genesis 49, starting in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will grasp your enemies by the neck. All your relatives will bow before you. Judah, my son is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. He ties his foal to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine his robes in the blood of grapes he's talking about jesus christ the lion of judah The Lion of Judah, Isaiah 31, 4. You just have to listen to me. It's not on the slides. When a strong young lion stands growling over a sheep it has killed, it is not frightened by the shouts and noise of a whole crowd of shepherds. In the same way, the Lord of heaven's armies will come down and fight on Mount Zion. Your enemy and mine is Satan, sin, and death. And someone has entered into human history where everyone else has failed and has become the king, the ruler, the anointed one who's made our problems his problems, who's laid down his life, died a death that we deserved on a cross, shed his blood that we might be forgiven. And after three days rose again to triumph, this is Jesus. And listen, right here you see a picture of Revelation chapter 19, the last book of your Bible, which paints a picture of our future saints. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Here's something really important. Your Bible tells a story, and from cover to cover, it has a unifying narrative. And there's one main character, one main subject. His name is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He is God the Son. He is the Savior of the world. He is Lord of all. Ever since Genesis 3, when our sin and our rebellion corrupted the world and ruined our relationship with Him, He has been on a rescue mission to gain for us fellowship with Himself. To bring his children home to him as a father who loves his own. He's a God who has done much in human history, but namely, he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Your Old Testament of your Bible is the preparation for this Savior to come. On the conservative end, more than 300 prophecies would find their fulfillment in Jesus. And Judah's blessing right here, before we even get out of the first book of your Bible, it details a king that's coming that's going to conquest all of his enemies. He's going to have a perpetual, never-ending, beautiful rule. Everyone else is going to submit and pay tribute to him. And all those who are with him will prosper and be blessed and have peace forever and ever. Hallelujah. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which also means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Where are you on that scale? One to Ten? How much do you trust God? Because the rest of the pages of this book are going to tell a story that's screaming at you and me. Hey, trust Him. Trust Him. Here's why. Isaiah 55, 8, God says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. My ways are far beyond anything that you could imagine. And in Romans 11, Oh how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, how impossible it is for us to understand His decisions and His ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give Him advice? Jesus Christ and the good news of His life that He lived as our substitute, His death that He died as our substitute, His resurrection and His new life that He imparts to us by His Holy Spirit dwelling in us and being at home and taking residence in our hearts. That's a reality. It declares to the world that God works in unlikely ways, through unlikely people, in the midst of unlikely circumstances. Church, you need to know today, our God does not work in our ways with our preconceived notions and expectations. He works and He wills exactly how He pleases, because He's God and we're not he will not fail, nothing can stop him, no one can thwart his plans. And so here's what I want to do in closing this morning. This is what I want to do. I want to remind us of where we've been. In Genesis 1 through 11, we we recounted the creation of all things And then we walked through the fall of sin, and and then this worldwide flood, and then the dispersion from the Tower of Babel, and Genesis 12 through 50 was the beginning of the Hebrew race, and God's dealings with Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and all along the way we've seen that the origin of all things and the beginning of all truth is God. He started it all. Along the way we're seeing God choose and preserve the nation of Israel. Along the way, we're seeing the beginning of God's covenant promises. Along the way, we're covering the scope in just this book of 2,000 years of human history. And we're laying a foundation for the rest of history and Scripture to rest on And So here's my question. How should we, right here in northwest Omaha, in 2023, respond to God's sovereign rule and control over all the cosmos, all of human history, Nations, generations, families, and the little circumstances of our lives today. Stop right now and take inventory of your part in this redemptive story. We live between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Y'all, he's coming back. He's coming back. All will bow their knee to him, and he will rule and reign. And God has made so many precious promises to his people who walk by faith. So on a scale of 1 to 10, I don't want to ask anymore how much do you trust him. I want to ask how much will you trust him? In Romans 15, 4, Paul writes, Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Let me give you some practical counsel. When we study God's word, a pattern emerges. We learn that God never changes. God never lies. He's never failed in the past. When he said he would do something, he did it. He will never cease acting like God. He'll never cease being good. He'll never cease being holy. Never cease being sovereign. Never cease being the God of providence. This is who he is. We also can learn to trust him by learning to distinguish his voice from the hundreds of other voices that compete for your attention and mine at every turn. Back when Jacob, in verse 15 and 16, was describing God, his shepherd, he's like, You've been my shepherd all my life. That name is Yahweh Rohi, the Lord our shepherd. Jesus, is our good shepherd. He leads us beside still waters, makes us to rest. He says, come all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. He's speaking, God's speaking, are we listening? We also have to come to grips with the fact that we have no alternative for trust. (laughs) Just think about this, who else and what else Are we gonna put our trust in? I love, I love when Jesus gives a teaching to his disciples in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and a bunch of people leave. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, why aren't you going with them? And his disciples ask one of my favorite questions in scripture, to who else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we gonna go? Who else are we gonna trust in? What alternative do we have lastly i want to invite us to consciously reject complaining and grumbling and understand that lament and sorrow are very different things god invites us into grief he wants to meet us there he's tender-hearted he's compassionate toward us he wants to teach and train us there Wants to bring us into his classroom and parent us in a way that works best for us. And the Psalms, they show us God's faithfulness. How he embraces the, mo- the, the mess of emotions in our life. You can do that today. I wanna close uh, with reading something for you. And I wanna invite us to bow our heads, close our eyes. And right now, God, I am asking that your spirit would be so rich here that the person in this room who knows and is convicted of walking in sin and walking a life apart from you would hear your voice crying from heaven return to me my hand is extended to you i want to forgive you i want to make you new jesus paid it all the debt has been paid if you're here this morning you're ready to give your life to Jesus, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you trust in his sacrifice on the cross for your sin, you're willing to bow your knee and transfer ownership of your life from you to Jesus, you will be saved. You will be made new. Delay no more. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will set your path straight. Church, I read these words over us right now. Very familiar song. Would you internalize this in your heart today? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. How sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood. And in simple faith, to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, God let it be. Just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. (laughs) I'm so glad I learned to trust Thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend. And I know that Thou art with me, wilt be with me to the end. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.